another week, another Not The Top 20 podcast Monday pod, sponsored by Betfair, with me, Ali Maxwell, and him, George Ellick. Hold on. Hold on, that's not right at all. What? Should I, I leave? No, I got a name wrong. Huh. Not The Top 20 podcast, sponsored by Betfair, nominated for mm. podcast of the year at the FSA Awards. The Football Supporters Association think that we are among the big dogs as the best podcast in football. Let's just hope they don't listen to this one. <laughs> really happy. Uh, you, were, you and I were on the golf course when uh, we found out and you know what really meant to do this? We, we ran across the fairway at each other. <laughs> screaming. Screaming and hugged, um, which was a nice moment. Uh, yeah, it's, it's really quite touching and humbling, I would say. We, we were nominated kind of weirdly like five years ago when we were still you know, we weren't doing it full time. We weren't even recording a podcast every week. And it felt like a lovely nod to a couple of upstarts um, just to say, well done for what you're doing. A nice pat on the head. And then, you know, we thought that was probably going to be one and done, an acknowledgement then. But to be back on the list this time, you know, we're on with some of the titans of the podcast game, uh, whether that is, of course, uh, the Guardian Football Weekly that we both sometimes contribute to, um, who I think win it most years because they have a listenership of 500 million, mm. um, which is handy for them. So Good even if they get just 1% then of the people voting, then they, they do okay. But also, you know, football cliches, are on there as well. There have been loads of, of, of very good pods. Simon Jordan's pod's on there. You, you love that one. Mm. The Price of Football and the Rest is Football on there too. Not the top 20 is who I'd be voting for if, if well, I was a listener of this podcast. If you have a second, and we really mean this because you know we went five years ago and we knew we had absolutely no chance of winning. I think this time around we have probably 0% chance of winning. Mm. But you and I shared a pint at the end of a long day in, in Plymouth and I said to you, if we can do anything to turn our chance of winning from 0% into 1%, then let's do it. So we are going to, for once, ask you guys for a vote, if that's okay. If you like the podcast, if you like what we've done, it would mean a lot to us just to even sit there on the, what is it, the 4th of December and have the slightest feeling that we might have a slim chance of coming away with, with a victory. So please do go to the link, which will be... It'll be in the description of this podcast. It'll be pinned to the top of our Twitter page. It'll be on the FSA website. It won't take you long to vote for us. So please don't be like, I'm so busy. I can't do that right now. I don't want to click a link and vote. That's what some people are thinking. Yeah, but I feel like you just kind of had a go at them. It's good cop, bad cop. I'll get emotional in a second. Okay. Because, guys, (laughs) it takes a village. No. Yeah doesn't it for a podcast to be successful to be to even be nominated for these i think to win this award it takes like a metropolis if we win Mm. i think we should come up with like something that we'll do if we win like we'll do a 24-hour live podcast what maybe not that because i have a child no you've said it so we'll do it we'll do a 24-hour live podcast if we win the fsa awards (laughs) okay done Don't say things if you don't mean it, mate. That's, you know, we're asking people for for their support. And I think in return, we should be honest. Okay. We'd love to be in the eyes of the Football Supporters Association, the best podcast of the year. When I say that out loud, George, it does actually make me a bit emotional because I'm really proud of our consistency and our durability. I won't speak for the quality of the pod. That is fairly variable. But in terms of consistency, sticking to our task of covering the EFL twice a week and now in in various other uh, ways as well, and our durability to be doing it coming up to eight years now, that makes me very proud. And I, I think there'll be people listening who've been part of that journey for a long time and hopefully feel like they've been a big part of it as well. For sure. I just love the idea that there are definitely people out there who've scrubbed the last five minutes and they've got to this point and they're like, they're still talking about it. On Friday night, the championship weekend was kicked off with the, probably the biggest game of the season so far between Leicester and Leeds. And I want to say, George, this was the night that the championship was blown wide open. Um, but, but it wasn't really. There's still 11 points between these two teams. But Leeds beat Leicester. And, and perhaps more importantly than blowing anything wide open, they showed that Leicester City are fallible and that they are very good. For sure. I think this is maybe the the evening where the championship wasn't hammered closed. Um, I think had had Leicester won this game, then suddenly the gap between them and Leeds would be 17 points. And that feels pretty insurmountable. And also there's obviously the added bonus to that of just showing yourself to be even more invincible. Um, interesting to note that now, this season, Leicester have lost two games over the campaign. Leeds have lost three. It's just those pesky draws at the beginning of the season that have stopped Leeds from being closer to, to where Leicester are now. Paul, pesky, solid draws. 
Wow. Okay. Normally you make a note when you say something silly. Cause <laughs> <I don't... laughs> um, Proud of that one. When... I'm, feel, I'm feeling myself, mate. We, last week's pod had probably the strongest piece of engagement it, that so we've you ever had. this one being like, you're going to say as much weird stuff as possible. We had incredible feedback from a podcast that we did, specifically about one part of the podcast that was nothing to do with what we're actually here to talk Fine. about, but it was to do with idiom mm. and proverbs. Uh, then we got nominated for a massive award and now... And then we went to a football match and had a great time. And now we're back doing what we do. And I'm just happy. And I might say, Paul Pesky Solid draws. I, f- I feel like Paul Pesky Solid draws might be the moment we jump the shark. But, okay. But let's see. Well, I won't do it again. And you, you've, you've stopped my flow. Um, it, with Leeds, there, you, know, you are right in what you say, I think, in terms of Leicester losing this game. Um, we've said it quite a lot, I think, over the season, where Leicester have had an incredible capacity to, to edge ahead in very tight games. And, and whether or not that's sustainable, I'm not sure. There's no denying that Leicester, when they're at their sparkling best, you know, teams just cannot really live with them. Um, but it's definitely not been the case, as I think it was kind of the second half of last season with Burnley, where they were making their dominance and superiority count on, on a much more regular basis in terms of just being far, far better than their opposition. With Leicester, I don't think that's the case. I think there's been a big... Um, disparity between their worst and their best performances but they've still managed to come away with three points in a few of the games they didn't play so well and for that reason that there is there has got to be a fair chance that this defeat here um you know their second home game they've lost this season the second home game they've lost one nil this season with a couple of difficult games coming up now where they um travel to middlesbrough uh, on the 11th of November and then we've got international break and then they host Watford and, and even though on paper that might look okay I'm still very much of the opinion that Watford are not a particularly easy opposition right now um, it's going to be you know even though the 11 point gap is still there it does just open a little glimmer of hope I think that other teams might be able to follow suit and take points off them um, Leeds were incredibly impressive they, they quite clearly deserved the win um, you know they were very good in the especially in the opening 20 minutes where they created a couple of really good opportunities Le- Leicester came back into the game in the second half for the second half um, but then Leeds were, were better until they scored the goal which came from Jorginho Rutter with um, it feels like when he scores goals it's probably going to have to be those kind where the ball falls to him um, just outside in the 60-yard box he can prod home um, Leicester didn't really create too much after that it didn't really feel like Leeds were, were in much trouble Kin and Dewsbury Hall had a very good header it must be said that was clawed away by Ilan Meslier um, which I think was was probably the moment where big um, moment, big yeah, save, massive save and a very good save. But apart from that, they didn't really threaten. And that's the second time that Leicester have gone one 0 down at home and then really struggled to create consistent, obvious goal scoring opportunities. Because it was the same against Hull, where they they kind of huffed and puffed with the ball but didn't really get anywhere. So, I mean, Leicester are still in a very commanding position, and it would still be a huge surprise if they don't win the league. And as I say, when they do play well, they are impossible to live with. But this was a significant result for Leeds, who keep themselves in that automatic promotion picture. It was a significant result for the other, you know, Southampton will certainly fancy their chances of, of trying to chase them down as well. And for Ipswich, because, you know, a, a Leeds fan, a friend of mine, messaged me about three weeks ago and said, do you think we can catch Ipswich? And I was like, well, hold on, there are two teams there there to catch. And I think for Ipswich, they want to make sure that they are in position to challenge for two automatic spots rather than just one. Uh, and that result helps there too. So a significant result and a significant performance by both teams with Leeds being ultimately very impressive. An absolutely incredible out-of-possession display. Uh, Daniel Farker should take credit for, for his setup. Um, we kind of spoke on the betting show. I picked Leeds draw no bet as my next best and I... I laid out what I considered to be the blueprint as far as I'd seen from both teams in the last few weeks, how I thought it could happen. Uh, and it played out almost exactly like that. And I think Farker deserves a lot of credit, but there were some individual performances right out the top drawer. Uh, Ethan Ampadu in particular and Glenn Kamara in the centre of midfield, that double pivot. I mean, they are so good defensively out of possession they are so hard to to get through to play through to win your midfield battle against uh, and then Rodon and Strauch as well are developing a really nice partnership as well if you look at the the past maps here that the the um the kind of uh, average positions it basically tells the story very very nicely that's not always the case with touch maps pass maps uh, etc average position stuff but here you basically see a massive hole in Leicester's front line with Fatawu and Mavadidi high and very, very wide and then just nothing 
in Leicester, in Leeds' defensive half in central areas. And that speaks to the screening job that Kamara and Ampatu were able to do. Vardy dropping deeper and deeper and deeper. Dewsbury Hall and Cazadeh, the eights, who've been, you know, probably Leicester's... Well, they've had three general goal threats this season. The wide forwards, uh, the number nine, and then the, the two attacking number eights. And uh, Leeds managed to shut down the nine and both eights here with a really, really good shape and really good um, marking. As you say, there was the odd moment for Leicester and it and generally came through Fatawu, an incredible individual skill in the first half to uh, beat his man, cut inside and hit the bar with what would have been one of the goals of the season so far. And then, of course, that cross from the right side as well that, uh, that was headed and brilliantly saved by Mesley. So, uh, excellent performance from Leeds. The good news for Leicester, as I see it, is that it took that to beat them 1-0. I look across the league and I'm looking for teams that I think can provide a performance like that. Not just being really good in your shape, out of possession. Not just denying Leicester good goal-scoring opportunities, but also being able to hurt them with your press, being able to hurt them with your attacking on the break. And other than Ipswich, I'm not sure which other team right now in the championship fits that bill. And even with Ipswich, I'm not sure that they've got the defensive strength in them that Leeds shown here. So, you know, the other 21 teams, I don't think are good enough to trouble Leicester. You know, we might get the the, the odd one off game, but I'm just not worried about it. I still I still expect them to canter to promotion. We just learned that they are fallible against basically a ten out of ten performance from the second or third best team in the league, and that's good for the but league I, as a whole. I would counter that by saying that we've already, despite some results saying otherwise, we've already seen quite a lot of the championship do quite a good job at modifying their threat and creating themselves like there was the Rotherham both at game. the same time yeah I mean I would say Rotherham did it pretty well um, QPR did it well a week ago with 10 men for the second half where they prevented Leicester from really creating anything with 10 men and they scored they scored themselves Sunderland did it pretty well where they created you know it, it yes the results suggest that no one is really doing it but I would say that in terms of balance of play as I mentioned a second ago it feels like Leicester for a team who won as many games as them who sit where they sit in the table do not dominate I mean they dominate possession and territory but they do not make their dominance or their level of um, disparity between the technical gift, uh, qualities of their players show as much as you would expect that's it I mean I'm not I'm not denying with you that they are going to win most games or they are better than most teams but it is striking how many games are, are, are like pretty tight against some like fairly moderate sides given where they are it was a big evening in the champ and it was a big Saturday too why don't we talk about Millwall nil, Southampton won, uh, George, because Saints are very much in the top four now, very much towards the top of that seeded batch and potentially pulling clear of it alongside Leeds. Um, although it took another injury time winner, Ryan Fraser scoring an injury time winner for the second time in a couple of weeks. They're, they were away to uh, Millwall. What, what do you make of Saints right now? Because it was, it was really poor about a month ago. But at that point, as far as I saw it, they weren't creating that many chances and they were giving up good chances. Now, on a really good run of form, good run of results, it strikes me that they are creating more chances and they're not giving up as many chances. So very clear improvement and maybe we should have trusted the process? Ah, yeah, maybe. I mean, they're definitely way, way better defensively now. Um, reasons for that, I'm not entirely sure. Maybe it's just a case of, of players becoming more adept and more used to the demands of what Russell Martin wants in possession whilst also not sacrificing too much from a defensive standpoint. Um, you know, I think Harbour Bellis has definitely grown into the role since he came in. Um, he's someone who should be given, you know, the role he played at Burnley last season, uh, a massive help in terms of being able to retain possession whilst also um, being being strong defensively. But yeah, they are. I mean, they are doing much better. It's worth pointing out, like Leicester, they have an incredible knack at the moment of scoring late goals like this run of form at the moment looks very, very different if they don't score late against Millwall, if they don't score the equaliser late against Preston. Um, but as Russell Martin said in his post-match interview, part of the reason for that is because they do ramp up the pressure so much during games. They grind teams down because they always have the ball, they're always on the front foot. And even in tight games, um, the the pressure kind of builds as the game goes on. Um, Ryan Fraser with, with, with the goal, um, a nice cutback from Adam Armstrong. I think maybe some questions as to the... the defensive um, positioning of certain players for that moment um, where it was a 
a pretty easy setback after the initial failed first one. But um, yeah, it was a game where they managed to nullify Millwall's threat. Probably not the worst time to play Millwall, who are you know themselves without a manager after Guy Rout left. It's been over two weeks now. I think we're probably going to get an appointment fairly soon. Um, but a, a really significant win. And I think the, the good thing is now you see the the scenes after the full-time whistle, like another late goal that galvanises fans. You see Martin celebrating in front of the fans. You see Martin pointing at the players. It feels a long way away from where we were a couple of weeks ago with, with, with some serious fan unrest as to what they were seeing under under Russell Martin. I mean, you were at a game at St Mary's kind of during the, the thick of that. And, mm. it, and it does feel like a, a completely different club right now. Yeah, I mean, Ryan Fraser spoke to the ITV highlight show and he was asked about the the vibe the feeling you know his own role within that having had a you know I, I, from what I gather being somewhat ceremoniously or unceremoniously like frozen out at Newcastle and it's all about how much he's he's loving life again and he just wanted to talk about what I guess is broadly called culture now and how good it is and the examples he gave were, were quite you know were quite sort of sweet they're they obviously have a lot of merit because they are the things that he put forward as as great examples of them having a great culture but it was basically things like we've got a darts tournament going on yeah. and we have lunch together everyone sits together at lunch and I just thought like isn't it amazing that given that everyone, you know, there is so much onus these days on culture, how to build culture within team sports and stuff like having lunch together is always mentioned. How is it ever the case that that's not happening? Like how does, how do those who are setting the tone, setting a culture at a club ever abide by that? That's what I, you know, impressive that it is, you know, in place now clearly and the players are feeling the benefits of it and and congratulations to Russell Martin for doing that, particularly having gone through a, um, uh, a sticky spell of results. But like, how how is it ever the case that the players aren't having lunch together? Uh, and how is it ever the case that there isn't a darts tournament ongoing? We, we have lunch together every time we're in the office together. I know, but we're not doing... It's the bare minimum. We're eschewing darts though. And maybe that's why we're not hitting the heights that we could be hitting. There was an incredible Russell Martin interview in the Sunday Times, an interview with David Walsh, who's you know one of the great profile writers, one of the great interviewers in, uh, in uh, the modern world and uh world. yes uh, it was inc- absolutely incredible interview with russell martin uh, it's the sort of openness uh in particular talking about his background in particular talking about his parents his relationship with his parents but also their own relationship how it formed him uh, and his brothers it is uh, absolutely amazing to read and you know it's very impressive for someone to be talking so openly someone in in a position where they you know they're a public figure and they're there to be shot at for one of a better phrase to to open up about this stuff is incredibly brave from them on a personal level but also i think highly valuable in, in terms of those that read it it can be really really uh, valuable on that front a very um very impressive interview and i would recommend that you find that if you can uh, on sunday george another away win it was blackburn at carrow road easy to say looking back now but it didn't play out with any major surprises, did it? Norwich, low on confidence, low on form, low performance level, really bad at the back, missing loads of players at front and back. Basically, I was going to say getting tonked. It, it's not that. It was a 3-1 win for Blackburn. But had Blackburn not gone down to 10 men with half an hour to go, having gone 3-0 up, I mean, it could have been anything. But do you think it was a red card? I don't. Yeah, I think it probably was. I didn't think live it was after the benefit of many replays. Weirdly, I actually thought live it uh, was, and then I saw the replay and thought we got the ball. Okay. Well, just, I just, saw the replays and just, didn't think he got the ball. That just goes to show me, doesn't it? But you it know? didn't matter, thankfully. No, who cares? Um, yeah, I mean, as you watch this game, when you consider basically the four teams that Norwich have played in a row, Leeds, Borough, Sunderland and Blackburn, it kind of feels like the worst possible opposition for them where they are so open at the back and they're playing against four teams there who are so devastating in transition on the, and on the counter um, who also have ball players in midfield who can control when, when necessary. It, it felt to start with like Norwich were almost trying to allow Rovers to have more, more possession in order to prevent them conceding the kind of goals that they ended up conceding after seven minutes and 15 minutes um, where to, to allow Dolan the space to... Um, run onto that ball from Rankin Costello was foolish. And then for the Smodics one, I mean, 15 minutes into the game and you've got a guy with seven goals this season, their biggest goal threat, just completely open um, on the on the, in that left channel and an easy pass and a, and a decent finish. It's just, you know, it's kamikaze defending and 
even though there there might be issues in terms of the squad. When you look at the um, when you look at Duffy, when you look at Stacy, like yes, they have it. They have issues and injuries. Um, you know, Jaden Warren is someone who had to come in and start this game for his first start at Norwich. So there's no denying that there are personnel issues, but it just feels like bad coaching, really, when your defensive shape is so um, out of line or just or just not really well drilled in order to prevent the very obvious threat that, that Blackburn offer. And that has been the case against all three other teams that we mentioned there. Um, you know, and it could have been more. And it did feel like after Smodic's got the the uh, the third goal, which again was just a completely untracked run to the far post, um, it felt like it could get really ugly there. You know, we heard the boos ringing out um, after each goal. It, it, it does feel right now like there's a, you know, it wouldn't be a massive shock to see uh, one of our live reactions on the pod if, if David Wagner was to be sat right now. But there feels like a bit of a power vacuum at the moment um, at Norwich with Ben Napper um, being appointed as their, their new sporting director. But he seemingly doesn't start in post for an, another few weeks. And given that his main task, you would think at least to start with when he sits at his desk, will be to assess the head coach situation and, and, and either make a call on Wagner or, or and find a a successor if his call is to, to part ways well what do you do now what do you do in, in the in the interim do you get an interim manager to, to, to go forward with at the moment or do you think that Wagner is still probably the man to to be in charge it's it's really tough but as we said last week like I, I often think there's um complacency amongst fan bases when things are going wrong you're like oh you're you know you're not a very good side and one's like yeah yeah and then you go you're actually possibly in danger here of going down I was like well I don't know about that but like you know the, the the benefit for Norwich fans is that the bottom three at the moment are really poor, and there is a seven point gap. But you know QPR have made a managerial change, and we'll talk about their performance in a second. But fair to say it was much more impressive than what we've seen previously. Sheffield Wednesday have made a manager change. Like if not, if those two, if any of those teams do pick up and go on a, a real run like we've seen in the past, like Huddersfield last season, for example, Norwich are in danger at the moment, given how poor they are of getting sucked into that. Cannot disagree. And talk about coaching. There's a man in the dugout yesterday at Carrow Road who's getting a ton out of his squad and doing so in a manner that is unbelievably entertaining and impressive, and that's Yondale Thomason. Uh, I'm, I'm basically at the point now where when Rovers win, I just want to celebrate and shout from the rooftops about how impressive I think Thomason's coaching job is here, a managerial job. And, and, and it's gone so far that even when they lose, I'm like, well, they don't have a particularly good squad, so that mixed with the way that he sets them up means that there'll be games that they lose and that's fine. You know, I'm almost kind of ignoring any defeat uh, and, and focusing too much on the victories and, and maybe that's wrong. But I just watch the way that they play all season uh, and the back end of last season. It, it's, it's, it's very rare. There aren't many managers at championship level who are able to uh, achieve this. Now, Thomason was given time and patience. There were times last season when I guess he was fortunate to an extent that results were good um, even when underlying performances were, were not very good uh, and that helped buy him time and now we're seeing the, the fruits of that the way that they pass and move is absolutely sensational um, and there are so many individual players that are so clearly benefiting from Thomason's coaching and from having their minds opened I guess in terms of passing and movement and, and fluidity and possession, bravery on the ball, uh, how to deal with it in tight spaces, when to, to bounce the ball off to a teammate or when it's time to turn and spin and try and beat your man 1v1. It's really exciting to watch. Uh, Ty Dolan is currently playing in a kind of number nine role, dropping very, very deep at times yesterday to, to receive the ball off the goalkeeper or the centre-backs and always seeming to make the right decision in, in what are, you know, Quite scary moment sometimes for a striker dropping deep back to goal. If you lose the ball there, suddenly you're you're on the turn and, and your defence is going to struggle. But Dolan kept it really really well. He in the final third he takes up all sorts of interesting positions and he's you know he's clearly quick, skillful. He presses well. Uh, I've been really impressed with how he's playing in that role, and it's great fun still watching Adam Wharton. Um, just manipulates the ball so well. Um, it stands out so much on that front playing like clever clipped passes with different parts of his foot first time always seems to know where the space is where players are moving and like to the extent where sometimes it, it almost looks like he's half asleep he's about to receive the ball and nothing suggests he's actually ready for it 
but he is. And it, it's all about kind of drawing players onto him and then clipping passes into teammates so that they've got more space. It's, it's really exciting to watch when it works. Smodix is benefiting. He's joined top tour in the league now uh, with Jack Clark, but Clark's, uh, I think four of his nine goals have been penalties, whereas Smod is on nine non-penalty goals. Um, you know, he's benefiting from the, 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 the way that they attack and showing that he's a very, very good finisher and good with his movement. Blackburn beating Norris 3-1. Uh, it was a bizarre atmosphere at Carrow Road. I think the start of the second half, I noticed watching on TV that the noise that wasn't coming from the stands <laughs> through the pitch side mics and, and through the TV was notable for its absence. And uh, there they were losing again. Uh, 3-1 winners, Blackburn. 3-1 winners, West Brom. Do we need to talk about West Brom, George? They're in fifth now. Three wins in a row. Five wins in seven. They beat Hull here. And they're looking very good, Nick. Yeah, they do. Um, they're looking well drilled. I, I think we're now seeing the Carlos Corboran blueprint in effect, where it's it's the out of possession shape that isn't you don't necessarily normally associate with teams in the championship who perform well, especially a team like West Brom, who have a lot of very gifted attacking players such as Jed Wallace and and John Swift, Brandon Thomas Asante, and others. But they, they just they're so happy to sit in and soak, and they do it so effectively. Me on a Sunday afternoon, <laughs> <laughs> um, and against the Hull side, who we know like to have the ball and and you know look to retain possession where possible. But they came into this game off the back of back to back wins, and as you know, went by the form. You know, went the way we expected. And this isn't you know West Brom aren't one of those. It's not like a Tony Pulis side where they sit in and they don't take care of the ball themselves. They have you know long periods of in possession themselves it's just there's no counter press whatsoever when they lose the ball it's get back into your shape and that is when Huddersfield was so strong was when they went ahead in games under, under Corboran they would then adopt that shape and teams just couldn't break them down and that's what we're starting to see here with with, with West Brom <laughs> but then there was it their first goal was they didn't look like they wanted to press Allsop and then Seri but Hull were refusing to play out until they came onto them. Yeah. And then Seri passed it straight to them and, and Wallace scored. And, and I also do think that's an element of why, you know, that's basically why we're seeing Jed Wallace playing up front is because of his pace. And because even if you aren't a team who are going to basically press um, in midfield, he is someone who can scamper past a, a high line. And in that environment, I mean, I actually think the goal itself, I think his first touch is underrated. Like, I don't think it's that easy, given the way that he received the ball with his back to goal, to... Um, to basically do a little Cruyff turn and get out, out of his feet in order to, to put the, the, the shot away. Absolutely impeccable knee slide from him. Yeah, very and good. The, I mean, he's, you can tell someone's enjoyed scoring a goal when they sprint off to celebrate faster than they've sprinted yeah. at any point in the actual move itself. He's uh, Captain Jedley and he's clearly loving life. But, and also when you look at, so this is Baggy's third consecutive win that was the first goal they've conceded um in four games dating back to when they were beaten 3-1 by Birmingham which in itself is their only defeat going back to the beginning of September but when you consider the goal itself from Coyle was I mean it was a, a great goal but it was an amazing um effort to cross from Scott Twine that was volleyed in at the far post from, from Louis Coyle it was one of those where like I think as an opposition manager you're saying fair play they are when they're ahead in games, as we saw against Coventry, who struggled to break them down apart from Hadji Wright missing a decent one on one, they are, you know, th this is the this is what you're looking for from a Corboran side is that ability to control games when ahead. And it's also interesting to note that of their five wins in their last seven games, this one against Hull is the only one in which they've conceded. Mm. So I'd yeah. love to read out a couple of numbers for you. Do it just to well, their XG against at the moment is absurd. Just I know to that. fluff up your point here, uh, XG against. That's exactly where I'm going. Last six games, 0 0.4, 0 0.2, 1.5, 0.4, 0.2, 1.8, 0.4. Now, anyone who enjoys sequencing knows that we've got a 0.2 coming up next. And that's what follows a 0.4. Uh, now, the reading out of numbers isn't particularly exciting, but the point there is in four of their last six games, they have, you know, in quantitative terms almost entirely shut the opposition out that is what you're saying it is backed up by eyes it is backed up by numbers is very very impressive and you know particularly given everything surrounding the club the uncertainty off the field Corbyn's always come across as a manager who tries desperately not to care about anything other than coaching his football team yeah. and you know there are aspects of management where you think to yourself sometimes actually how important might it be more important to have 
more personality, more character, more visible leadership in terms of people management and man management. And Corbrand, fr- from from how I see it, almost like Bielsa, Bielsa levels of like not caring about that at all, just coaching, just tactics, just drilling. Um, and, you know, right now it looks like absolutely the best approach for, for their current situation. They have got, per FBref, the biggest overperformance against their XG going forward. So some some good finishing so but, far. But, it's but also when you look at the um, way that they've won games, this is the third game in a row they've covered the minus one. They beat Preston 4-0. You know, like they are winning games fairly comfortably. So it's a, it's a case of, if you were to take... Classic case of? It is a case of. Well, it sounded like you were going to say classic case and you decided yeah, it wasn't classic. I don't think it's that classic. <laughs> it's, <laughs> I, I think, love that. I think it's just a case in, of... Incredible internal filtering you've thank got. Thank you. Um, <laughs> where if you... And, and they've also drawn three games nil-nil um, recently. So I do wonder if you were to... You know, this way you can look at expected points rather than expected goals. Where if you were to look at that, maybe um, it wouldn't actually have a massive detriment to their points tally. Grady Diangana. Yes. Last thing to say. Um, easy to forget how amazing he was in the... 2019-20 season when they went up, both as a goal threat and a creator from wide areas, and particularly as a dribbler. He notched 0.68 goals per 90 that season, which is a really, really strong return. It's fair to say the last two or three years since then, he's been miles off it for various reasons. I think he lost a lot of confidence in the Premier League season, and it and it didn't come back for two seasons in the Championship. He was miles off those numbers, but after and after seven games of this season, he'd only played a total of ten league minutes because he started the season injured. It's fairly clear now that his confidence is back. It's particularly visible in his dribbling and in his decision making, and it's very, very exciting. And it's very important for West Brom to be a, a decent attacking threat on top of how good they are out of possession. So there you go, nice big chunk on West Brom. We, we weren't able to talk to them. Talk to them, talk about them last week because they, they were playing on the Monday night, uh, that game that they won against Kov. Uh, Kov losing back-to-back games since we last spoke, George. Uh, losing to Baggies and then losing to Preston North End 3-2 on the weekend. Yeah, it's hard to really wrap your head, wrap your head around what's going on at Coventry at the moment because I... You know, the results are not good. They have lost four games in a row, having gone through a, a period where they were struggling to win games, but drawing a lot. Um, there's been, I think, some talk amongst the fan base of a shift in style of play being to blame for this, where they've they've almost abandoned their um, counter-attacking philosophy from last season and, and gone after a more possession-based style. I don't think the performances are as bad as the results. You know, I watched the West Brom game where as I say, they, they missed a couple of opportunities at, at, in moments. Once they went behind, they just had a lot of very stale possession. Um, but as I mentioned, West Brom are basically the best team in the league are going ahead right now. Um, it's it also very low on confidence. But it, yeah, that's what I was going to say. I mean, it's, yeah. it's important as well. It, it kind of gets lost that they lost Victor Jokeres, who at the moment is looking like a player whose next move will probably could, could be to you know a European elite team, given how well he started at Sporting. Gustavo Harmer, who has been Sheffield United's best player in the Premier League this season. So they've lost two players there who could well be playing European football. I mean, again, I think Harmer's next move, especially if Blades go down, will probably be to a a team with aspirations to finish in the in the, in the European places in the Premier League or, or abroad. Um, so it's, you know, if you're going to take the, the 10 or 20 best individual players in the Championship last season, I think Coventry have lost two of those and haven't really been able to replace them with like-for-like quality, albeit Hadji Wright obviously came in with it for a decent fee. Um, so there's some element there where you've got to temper it. And, and again, I don't think they've been as poor as they, they looked in games. I think there's been a finishing issue. I think they certainly look much worse at the back. And it does feel like with every poor result, you know, their head's going down even further and there seems to be a confidence issue there. So, um, you know, Mark Robbins wasn't happy with a supposed offside um, for the second Preston goal here. Um, but he also, you know, said that, uh, you know, it was it was mistakes being made by them, and that, that seems to be at the moment. It's individual mistakes, I would say, rather than a, a just a generally poor performance level that's that's costing them. 
Preston back to winning ways, though, after a, a, a pretty poor stretch of results. Um, this was, as you say, a, f- a fairly tight game. They took their chances. Osmajic was a, a presence up top uh, and did a, a decent job there. Uh, Kian Best had a really good game, eye-catching game, really playing left-sided centre-back. Started the season playing left wing-back. Um, but Liam Miller, I think in these home games in particular, when Preston want a little bit more going forward, uh, Liam Miller's proving to be pretty lively option on the le- on the left in the left wing back role uh, Kian Best who only turned 18 in August playing left wing back uh, and that was a really interesting and, and eye catching performance from him um interesting that the both teams playing three at the back here pretty rare in the modern championship not the modern championship pretty rare in this season's championship i saw a lot of commentary fans over the weekend on twitter discussing potentially changing the formation saying look if half the league last year were playing three at the back and now only three teams or so are playing three at the back. Are we being left behind a little bit tactically? Um, interesting. I mean, they don't have a ton of wide attacking options, as we saw here with Ellis Sims eventually playing off the left wing. Sakamoto, basically the only one, naturally. Van Evick at a push, but I think more of a wing-back, full-back type. I guess Callum O'Hare, Casey Palmer can play off the left, but not their natural position and, and definitely not the profile of wide forward, wide forward that's kind of thriving and filling the top teams in the league at the moment. So they're in a, a bit of a bind. You know, Robbins has shown before that he he's happy to switch formation. He, he didn't play three at the back until that League One promotion campaign. I don't think for a moment he's obsessed with playing three at the back. But I also think there's an awkwardness if he does want to change it and if he thinks that that itself, in and of itself, is, is an issue. There were some... So yeah, some poor stuff defensively here that I don't associate with Coventry under Robbins and uh, in possession, just a real lack of confidence uh, as well. But a good win for Preston. Freddie Woodman had one of those games where he made two incredible yeah. saves that both ended up being tapped Goals. in on the rebound. Unfortunate. Uh, George Bristol City won, Sheffield Wednesday nil. Uh, Rob Dickey scored his second winning goal of the season. Good on him. Good on him. This game hinged on a red card to Barry Bannon. And I thought it was a strange incident an unusual incident in some ways. I'd love to know what you thought about it. I think by the letter of the law, it probably is a red card, isn't it? Um, there's no genuine attempt to play the ball. The ball, I think the despite the protestations of Bristol City players, I think it was quite clearly outside the area and it's a foul. So I, I think it was the correct decision personally, albeit I can totally understand why if you're somebody who wanted Sheffield Wednesday to win that game, you'd feel pretty aggrieved at, at, at it being as... as you know, the way that it's happened. I think the reason I said it seemed unusual is just because of the presence of the defender that's back, that's gone back on the line. But it's still... So you've got him, he's obviously taking a free shot of goal. It's goal scoring the opportunity, isn't there, it? And then there's another defender back there too. Yeah. But that's, but it's it's always this idea of there's a man covering. It, it doesn't matter. It's it's mm. irrelevant. Like if it's a goal scoring opportunity, which when you're about to pull the trigger from, 11, you know, just inside the box, um, you know, that is a goal-scoring opportunity, I'm afraid. It doesn't matter. There could be a wall on the line and it would still be a goal-scoring opportunity. <laughs> um, so, yeah, as I say, I can understand why you feel aggrieved. I think we all have a perception in our head of what a red card offence is and a trip from behind with your arms up in the air isn't really that. But I think um, Bannon probably thought he was going get, to get away with it for that reason uh, when quite clearly it was a foul. So, yeah, frustration there. And, and obviously I have the band, the band to come with that too. Um, it wasn't. A classic game, I wouldn't say. Curtis Fleming in charge of um, Bristol City as their search for manager continues. Um, they were okay in the game. You know, they they had a lot of the ball, which Fleming said after the game, he said he wanted them to be better in possession than they had been. Sam Bell missed a very good opportunity to make it 2-0, which would have made the game safe. Uh, Conway's looking sharp, isn't he? Conway's it? looking very sharp, so which is good to see. visibly... I think even better than he did before his injury, which is exactly what you want to see from a young player. Yeah, exactly. And bouncing back from back-to-back defeats is 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 clearly a you know a a, a good thing for them. Um, Ashley Fletcher nearly um, got an equaliser very late on a brilliant save from O'Leary to, to stop that from happening. But Bristol City were the, were the better team on the day and, and were deserving of their three points and probably should have made the game safe with that bell chance to hit the post. So now this morning, uh, Bristol City being heavily linked with Oxford United's manager Liam Manning, uh, I think. Because you are highly emotional about this. Uh, we should only talk about it if it happens. Okay. You all right with that? Yeah, yeah. Okay. You, I mean, you've already tweeted about it. So if you want some of George's thoughts, you can head to at George Elec. But uh, let's talk about Bristol City's new manager, uh, whoever it may be, if and when they are in post. Uh, you talked about it not being a, a classic game. Plymouth 3, Middlesbrough 3. What a roller coaster down in Devon. 
We were there. We were there. We, we rode the roller coaster. We were loving it. Mm. Let's talk about the game first. All right. Just two teams that wanted to win and wanted to win by playing front foot attacking football. Sounds really simple. I'm not sure what percentage of championship games you'd watch and actually think that. So it was very refreshing. So this is a, a thing that I think we're seeing a lot in the EFL at the moment, especially in the championship in League Two, where there are more teams than usual whose attacking philosophy is irrespective of game state. So I think both Plymouth Argyle and Borough look to play front foot attacking football because of the quality they've got in those areas, basically regardless of what the score is. I think there are a few teams like that. I think we see that as well in uh, League Two, certainly with Notts County, with Swindon, with uh, Stockport, with Wrexham, and we see it in the Championship with Blackburn, with Borough, with Sunderland, with Plymouth, with Leeds, with Leicester, Southampton. And what that means is you're getting loads of these games where as soon as the first goal goes in, just carnage ensues because you're not seeing, you know, what we spoke about earlier with West Brom being very good at defending leads out of possession. None of these teams are adopting that kind of methodology in order to try and win a game. They just continue to attack and, and try and make the game, you know, try and score more goals rather than sitting on a lead. And that means we're seeing games that end three all, that's that means you know, five alls, five fours. And it's great to watch as a neutral. I think, you know, we were there with... Um, the chairman and some directors of Plymouth Argyle, I think, found it quite stressful, more stressful than we did. Um, but it was, it was, yeah, excellent to watch. Where in, you, when you're sitting watching a game and you've got Morgan Whitaker on one side, you've got Barley Member on the other side, you've got Matt Crooks and Sam Greenwood in midfield. You know, th- there's a lot of just really fun attacking quality. Um, Isaiah Jones down the right hand side for, for Borough. I, men- I mentioned Borough's right side the other day, and we saw it in the flesh here. That that seems to be where they skew in possession. Uh, and you can kind of see why Crooks is playing in this kind of second striker 10 role. And, and he seems more comfortable combining down the right side than he does uh, in the left half space. Isaiah Jones is just so tricky. A, when he's 1v1, albeit I actually thought Argyle did pretty well against him in, in 1v1 terms. But also, you know, when you've got that passing and movement, it can be very, very difficult to track him. And the same can be said for Crooks. They combined down the right side to set up Sam Greenwood. He was very, very good as well in this game and and just you know clearly thriving in a Michael Carrick system and starting to show or starting to turn what's clearly been uh, a lot of potential really impressive youth career Greenwood's had into performances and output uh, towards the top of the championship as well Uh, we saw Mumba score a lovely goal we saw Azaz score an absolute beauty we saw Josh Coburn score two goals um, albeit one of them was a, a tap in from a penalty that he'd missed um, and the first one I still think might have been an own goal, but anyway, uh, Coburn with a, a, a pretty notable performance. It wasn't of exceptionally high quality, I wouldn't say, in all aspects of it, but because of his size, because of his work rate, and because he, you know, he is someone that um, is a threat inside the penalty box as well, he gave the centre-backs of Argyle a really tough time, loads to think about. Um, physically, he's unbelievably impressive for someone of his age. I can't wait to see what size and shape Coburn is going to be in like five years' time because he's already pretty big for such a young player. Um, so loads of loads of good stuff on show. Whitaker's equalising goal. I think fairly fortunate in that it was a you know a free kick from a wide area that he he you know curls inwards and curls all the way in, skids off the wet surface. Um, but I suppose that is an aspect of those kinds of deliveries is that if you can get it within the posts, um, then if someone goes for the header and misses it it's very very difficult for the goalkeeper so a brilliant match just a pretty amazing day wasn't it uh, as you as you say we were uh, guests of Simon Hallett the chairman of the club and hospitality we were shown was absolutely unbelievable Simon gave us a tour of home park when we first arrived and you know that there's so many aspects of the day that we had that have that have stayed with me and will will stay with me and and gave us so much insight into what it is to be the chairman and majority shareholder of a football club all the different moving parts that go into the running of a football club the sort of uh, leadership that you have to show the the sort of people that you have to hire and empower to do their jobs just to be considered a well-run club george it it definitely made me think wow this is this is difficult and it makes you think it's no surprise that in clubs where there is not strong leadership things go awry easily and quickly because I don't see how you could operate a football club without clear-minded and strong leadership coming from the top of it and also you know during the tour of home park 
um simon would tell us about other projects that are going on alongside you know the running of the football club whether those are you know building new training grounds or, or whatever it's going to be and you kind of forget that because we're fans and we focus on things like appointing managers and buying players rather than the holistic view which is how many different facets there are to to owning a club and you have to get them all right and they're all have to kind of be co-currently aligned in order to make things work um and it's also just interesting talking to simon about the way that he perceives data within football and within life and how important and central it is to making decisions but you know the good use of data rather than data for data self um just a general uh, attitude towards decision making that is, is a bit of a bit of a breath of fresh air i mean it's hard to talk to simon in pubs in plymouth because every five minutes someone comes over and shakes his hand um so <laughs> there isn't much um you know there's not much longevity to the conversations but i, I can't thank him enough for the hospitality that we were shown on the day by him and everyone else at, at Argyle. It really is a very special place to be at the moment. Absolutely. I mean, it, it genuinely coincided, and I mean that in its literal sense, it was a coincidence that we were there a day or two after Simon had revealed Argyle's updated five-year plan. Um, I know it was a coincidence because we had the date in the diary from about <laughs> July or August. So <laughs> I don't think it was anything to do with us going down there. But it was interesting timing because there had been a previous five-year plan laid out very clearly when Argyle were in League Two. It talked about where they wanted to get to and how they wanted to achieve that. And it's a it's great to look back on that now, knowing that they've since then won two promotions and are now in the championship. This is the updated plan. Um, it's it, It's, you know, I think fairly open and honest in comparison to how a lot of people in his position communicate. Um, I did note with some amusement that while the majority of the fan base replied saying, thank you so much for mapping this out for us. It, it helps us so much as fans to see the vision and understand, you know, the steps that have to be taken to to make improvements and make changes and make progress at a club. There's also a chunk of fans who respond by going, I don't know, mate, I think that's a bit overambitious, <laughs> which I think is just an incredible way around. Like, and, and, and another reason why the club feels not unique. There are other clubs being very well run with openness, with good communication and with, you know, realism and hard work at, at their forefront. But the idea that someone's being told they're not ambitious enough, uh, sorry, that they're being overambitious from a fan base. I just think that's delicious, delicious and ambitious um, and leads us on to our next question conversation Daniel Story wrote a piece about QPR at the back end of last week which I just love it when Daniel Story turns his focus on EFL clubs because he always seems to to my eyes anyway really sum up very well whatever's happening at an EFL club in the space of a thousand or two thousand words and I think it's a really impressive skill one line he wrote stuck out so much based on our discussion about QPR last Monday and based on our time at Argyle over the weekend and that was QPR have benevolent owners, but that's not a synonym for leadership and it's not an acceptable replacement either. I thought the line was brilliant when I read it. And then spending the weekend uh, yeah. at a club with such strong leadership is is very, very interesting. QPR made a very interesting appointment last week. Uh, Marti. Marti Cifuentes. Nice. <laughs> Better than your pronunciation of Mertha. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Yeah, I find Spanish easier than Welsh, <laughs> to be fair. Uh, let's get the pronunciation elephant out of the room first, because it, it's Martí Cifuentes. I think it's unlikely that both of us are going to say Cifuentes with the sort of TH sound as it is in English mm. 100% of the time. I'm going to try and do it. I think if you would prefer to say Cifuentes, because it's somewhat easier to say and a little bit quicker. I was just going to call him uh, Kifuntz. Kifuntz. Kifwants. That's just how it looks. Kifwants. You, know? you said it in, yeah. Why? That was a weird reaction from you. <laughs> it's just one of the weirdest things I've ever heard. Um, it's just phonetic, isn't it? But what I'm saying to you Cifuentes. is, if you want to re respond to anyone saying, George, you're not saying it properly with the Cifuentes, you could say, well, I speak South American Spanish and that comes with a soft C rather than the th sound. So George speaks Argentine Spanish and that's why he's going to be saying well, I've obviously been saying Cifuentes uh, for a long time about the Ecuadorian who plays for Rangers. So. Yeah, no, you have, to be fair. Yeah. Um, I think I'm going to like him, you know, Cifuentes. In his post-match interview the uh, with ITV, the interviewer was trying to lead him to water to say that he was basically... Did just, he drink? Basically just pleased that uh, QPR hadn't lost. That was That was the the pool of water that, that the interviewer wanted him to drink from. He did not drink from that water. His response was, 
no, that is not the way that I think. He was like, I'll never be happy just to not lose. That's not the way I think. He's definitely saying and doing some interesting things so far, George. Talk me through QPR under Cifuentes. It's quite fun talking about Jaws, isn't it? Should every week. Mm. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I thought QPR were, were much improved. It felt like a very clear idea of how a shift in terms of the way that he wanted to play, you know, to go away from home. Yes, against a Rotherham side who often do concede possession, but they looked to get on the ball and pass the ball in more advanced areas. It seemed like there was a very clear idea of basically let's dominate the left flank um, and get the ball to Ilias chair as much as possible in that area and they you know they, re- they reaped the reward for that um, with his goal which was a brilliant strike and something we haven't seen enough from chair I mean, I'm sure Gareth Ainsworth would have watched the highlights of this game and been quite frustrated to see Ilias chair pick up the ball on the left hand side cutting on his right and then smash it into the top right hand corner which is something 43 shots in the league since yeah. his last goal yeah I mean that is that ladies and gentlemen is the new manager bounce um <laughs> Interesting as well. I quite liked that a player who hasn't started a league game this season uh, was brought into the side and played the whole 90 minutes. That is Elijah, Elijah Dixon, Bonner. Dixon Bonner, who was unlucky not to score. You know, he, he kind of squirmed the ball through Johansson, but uh, ended up hitting the inside post at, at, at nil one, which would have put them 2 0 up and probably would have made the game safe. He played all 90 minutes as well. Um, he played on the right side of the midfield three, which again feels like an area where. I if he continues to play there, I might think he might get a few goals because I do think we're going to consistently see basically possession kept on the left-hand side with Willock and, and Chair and probably quite a few balls getting to the back post like we saw with, with Dixon Bonner. He's not a player I know a great deal about. I think he had a very, very good England youth team career. I think he might have captained the under-17s for England. Was he Liverpool? Liverpool, yeah. I recognise him from Football Manager. There you go. Just to pick him up on a free in like FM 21, yeah. probably 22. I, I just like the fact that Sifuentes has come into QPR and has watched training and he's gone like, yeah, him. I like him. He's never played, he's never started a game before, but I'm going to bring him into the side. So There you go. That's um, another example of what seems like, you know, good front-footed leadership in the first week also in charge. Just, just, just good, you know, it's, it's a clear moment where you can actually see a guy coming in and changing things to, to do it the way that he wants to do it, which is good. So... Yeah, promising performance. There'll be frustration they weren't able to get the result, albeit Rotherham also hit the woodwork at one all, which would have um, you know, been the game going to them. Uh, Kelman missed a decent chance in injury time too. But uh, yeah, so positive, I would say. A positive start yeah. for the new man. Yeah, my, my notes on this and the way I've taken it is very positive in terms of QPR to the extent where I it's it's worth me remembering they didn't win the football match. And that defensive vulnerabilities, particularly from set pieces, cancelled out all of their good and hard work in possession. So it is not fully positive, but based on where they're coming from, I still think it was a, a, a an impressive and noteworthy performance. Um, and I'm excited to see more from Cifuentes. You know, we talked last week, I said it's one of the worst 12 months of decision making I've ever seen from a football club, um, certainly in the EFL. And I find it interesting that they are appointing a guy who was, by all accounts, a strong contender for the QPR job, both when Mick Beale left and when Neil Critchley were left. So it was a club that I didn't uh, associate with poor decision-making until 12 months ago. Um, And I guess those people that I considered to be decent decision-makers when they weren't reacting um, with panic had identified this guy, presumably through good diligence, due diligence, I don't know, data analysis, interviews, profiling, all that sort of stuff. Um, He did a cracking job at Hammerby, by all accounts, at AAB before. Um, He has done the rounds in in Scandinavian football and I believe left a very positive imprint wherever he's been. Hammerby as a club have uh, 25,000 fans that come watch them every week, high expectations. So he's handled that before, even if he doesn't know the league, so to speak. He seems, as you've kind of isolated with that Dixon Bonner selection decision, seems very, very clear in in the way that he wants to do things. So we're seeing an influx of managers like this who might, on the face of it, look like unknown, risky appointments because they haven't managed at this level before. But clubs like what they see from people like Röhl and Cifuentes. They don't want to just stay on the merry-go-round. They want this like clear identity. And I'm not going to say new ideas because... There's not that much new necessarily in football, but, you know, what might broadly be considered kind of progressive front foot ideas. And uh, it'd be interesting to see how it goes. They they played with Willock and Chair, which was not something that Ainsworth liked doing. And 
Clearly, Chair was the best player on the pitch. Clearly, he is empowered by this appointment. Even before the weekend, I saw quotes from him on social saying the first few sessions have been unbelievable. And it's not a huge surprise that Ilias Chair might be more excited to play for a manager of this profile than he was uh, under Gareth Ainsworth. And he put in a, a brilliant performance. Uh, nine progressive carries, where he's averaged just three a game this season. Uh, four shots, went close with another one and scored that worldie. That's Ilias Chair at his best. And he's QPR's best player. So already I'm like, this makes sense. Get QPR's best player playing in a system that gets the best out of him. Not a bad start. And although Willock looks a shadow of the player that he was two years ago, I can't, I, I can see a world where he grows in confidence as well with a little bit of love and support and this sort of style of play. So um, yeah, lots that I'm kind of excited about. I think Paul and Cannon looked pretty comfy in, in fullback roles, which are important in a, in a system like this. They're, they're going to skew left because Chair and Willock both love operating in in those left side channels. And hopefully they're going to play to their strengths. And uh, it's going to look a little awkward at times because they don't have a very good squad. And they had a squad that was not built to play this style. But I'm taking the positives. And Rotherham can too, because they fought back and drew 1-1. Uh, George, Birmingham 2, Ipswich 2. It was more like it for Rooney and Birmingham in that they were good for an hour. But the storm came at 2-0 and they, they, they couldn't fight the storm. Um, Bakuna had a good game. Had He has those games a couple of times a season where he just turns into an absolute dynamo. That was the case here. Ruddy also had a good game, made some quality saves before Marcus Harness was at the double. Ipswich's subs making a, a big difference here. Dane Scarlett, we probably saw the best flashes from him. A really good play in the build-up to the 2-1 goal and then a brilliant pass forward to Hutchinson in the build-up to the 2-all, to the equaliser. Ladapo was involved uh, with a shot save that Harness stuck in the rebound of. Good grammar. And then Harness's equaliser. What a sweet, sweet... Great goal. Sweet connection on the left foot volley. Four goals and one assist in his last 200 minutes of action. He is having to handle, clearly being a... Substitute or game changer, as they're mm. often called. Uh, and he's doing a pretty good job when he's coming on, Harness, which is good to see. He's got a big role to play, I think. Uh, the way that Ipswich use their squad means players like him and Ladapo are often coming into games when the points are on the line, even though they may, may not play the amount of minutes that they want to. Um, you know, those two goals from Harness were, might be essential uh, as to whether or not Ipswich managed to get up this season. Um, I think for Birmingham, you've got a see this as a huge positive step now obviously they'll feel really frustrated that they squandered the lead but there was a moment in that game when they were 2-0 up against a side who um, have had such a great season who've only lost one game thus far in, in the league and you know you've got Rooney's name being chanted around St Andrews you've got um, Stansfield who seems to absolutely be reveling playing under one of or if not the best English striker of all time one of probably now um, so yeah, it, it feels like a step in the right direction. It feels like they, they took the game to a team whose attacking threat is very obvious. And it was only, as you say, because of a, a brilliant finish from Harness late on that they were able to, that they didn't pick up all three points. So progress from Birmingham side, I think given the way that things went, it's a good draw for Ipswich, having been 2-0 down away from home. Um, they've got a really big game in midweek. That's that rearranged game from the one that was on Sky. Um Against Rotherham coming up in midweek, if they were to win that, then they will go just a solitary point behind Leicester. Um, and I think, you know, I probably, I personally anticipate they probably should win that. So um, not the worst point for them, albeit they'll be frustrated that they weren't able to really compound Leicester's uh, defeat. Um, but yeah, not 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 a bad result for either side, I reckon. And there were three nil-nils out of the 12. Uh, Swansea nil, Sunderland nil. Included a first-half red card to Charlie Patino for two bookable offences, uh, but Swans held firm, and I think it's notable. I think it's a very good reflection of intangible things like character, spirit. You know, situations like this very much test those, and they stood up to that test. Sunderland, as you'd imagine, had a lot of the ball, had 25 shots to three, but only three on target, and uh, Rushworth dealt with those pretty well. Jamal Lowe missed a pen. Uh, one of Swansea's rare forays forward involved a, a set piece, a penalty awarded, but low uh, missing the pen. So nil-nil there. Also nil-nil Stoke and Cardiff. Uh, Sean sent us a Sunday scouting report saying drab game with both defences on top. McNally and Pearson. Uh, ben Pearson, that is very good for us. McGuinness a rock for Cardiff. Bowler showed glimpses of quality. And Huddersfield nil, Watford nil was about as bad, I think, as a, as a football oh, match gets. Oh, my goodness. About as bad as it gets. Yes. Um, 
I note that... Not the worst thing for Huddersfield, given they weren't 4-0 down at half-time. Wow, and they have some fairly significant injury issues, as, as discussed on the betting show. So much so that, albeit player roles are fluid these days, George, and it's mm. and you shouldn't just categorise someone as a defender, a midfielder, Absolutely an attacker. Absolutely not. But if you were to do that, I reckon <laughs> Darren Moore's Huddersfield team included seven defenders, which is pretty unusual. He had Tom Lees, Michael Hellick, Matty Pearson... Ramani Edmonds-Green and Yuta Nakayama all playing, uh, all of them broadly centre-backs, or if not, then defenders. Uh, then he had wing-backs, Jaheim Headley and Ben Jackson playing, and then Ben Wiles in centre-mid, big Carl Hudlin and Sorba Thomas uh, up top. So a nil-nil draw, probably a, a good result, but what a terrible game of football from a nil-nil to a 7-4. <laughs> little bit of FA Cup chat. We're not that across it and we and we don't pretend that we are. But 10 past three, sitting in the stands at home park, you just leaned over and went, mate, Swindon 3-0 down at home to Aldershot. <laughs> Sorry? I shouldn't laugh. I assumed it had been the early kickoff or something. No, no, 10 minutes gone, 3-0. Half time, 4-0. 60th minute, 7-0. Hmm. And then, <laughs> briefly, 8-0 until it was ruled out. I mean, absolutely remarkable. An incredible cup upset. Aldershot per opta, the first non-league team to score seven or more goals against a football league side in an FA Cup match from the first round proper onwards. Uh, I don't think I should talk about this. Okay. I think you should talk about it though. Well, Jack Barham scored a hat-trick, albeit he probably wasn't the one that caught my eye as much as Laurent Tolage, who's a former Brighton Academy player, so we should assume he's got a lot about him. Had a lot of poor loans in the championship. Now finds himself age 22 playing for Aldershot. Powerful, technically sound. Scored two cracking goals here. And then some people might have seen the name Josh Stokes mentioned this season. Uh, he joined AFC, uh, Aldershot from AFC Sudbury in the summer. He was released by Ipswich aged 16. Uh, and I saw an interview with him in the summer where he said his goal is to play for Ipswich Town in the Premier League. Okay which is quite fun. That's obviously uh, quite the motivational goal because he has stepped up to the National League unbelievably well, um, scoring and assisting goals, scored one here, assisted one of Barham's too. Um, and Tommy Widrington is the manager. Ryan Deeney, who's the non-league expert on NTT20 squad, says Widrington has transformed the club with good recruitment, calculated gambles and a good football team. Now we appear to have a uh, crying baby in one of the offices or corridors next door to ours which is uh, certainly a first during a recording but um uh, just trying to rattle through a couple of notable fa cup first round propers uh, i'm going to highlight a couple of teams that beat teams in the league above that's always an, a good first filter um the biggest one was ramsgate who are in the eighth tier uh, as discussed on the six fix it's the home of the biggest spoons in the country Weatherspoons in Ramsgate, one of the most incredible places you'll ever go. Um, and they beat Woking of the National League 2-1 um, with uh, former Manchester United Academy player Lee Martin scoring the winner from an expertly uh, built set piece, which I thought was pretty fun. Uh, Wimbledon thumped Cheltenham 5-1. Cheltenham's performance was poor, but that's more like it from the Dons. Uh, Bristol Rovers won 7-2 against Whitby, which was Pretty brutal. Uh, Barrow, another League Two side that beat League One opposition. 3-1 winners against Northampton, as did Morecambe coming from behind to beat Lincoln 2-1. So a good uh, weekend for League Two sides to beat League One sides. Pompey haven't lost in the league, have lost in the cup uh, to Paul Cook's Chesterfield with the winner scored by Tom Naylor. Fairly uh, bittersweet that, I think, for, for Pompey fans. Um, and Yeovil beat Gateshead. Yeovil of the National League South, a championship team 10 years ago, of course. They beat Gateshead here in the National League, struggling a little bit after Mike Williamson's departure. Uh, elsewhere, it was great to see Horsham showing unbelievable resolve to draw three all at, at Barnsley. Albeit my main takeaway from this game was a goal scored by Barnsley's 17-year-old Fabio Jalot, who I've seen mentioned loads of times on social media, but haven't seen very often with my eyes. It was an absolutely unbelievable strike. So um, please... Neil Collins. Can we see more Fabio Jallo? Because he looks pretty lively indeed. Uh, Sloughtown earned a replay with Grimsby. Their player manager, George Scott Davies, mm. former yellow, yes. scoring a free kick. Player manager scoring free kicks. That's good stuff for, yeah. for the first round of the FA Cup. Having drawn his former club um, in the next round if they were to get past. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's exciting. And lastly, 
we both caught what was just pure FA Cup first round stuff. And that was Cray Valley Paper Mills' second half display at the Valley to come back from a 1-0 deficit to draw one all and take them all of four miles back to their home for the replay. Amazing this. I only watched second half and I kind of looked at the stats of the first half and saw that Charlton won a up but had, um, by all measures, probably deserved to be more than the one up. But from what I saw, it was a very different game in the second half where Cray Valley, it's, it's such a cliche. Yes. But, I but, think for FA Cup first round, you, you can deal in cliche. You have to. If you're an alien and you watch the second half of that game, you wouldn't have known who was the third tier team and who was the eighth tier team. <laughs> um, I thought you were going to say form book goes out the window or something. Thoughts with Kyrell Isby, who just burst into tears when he was injured on the pitch and then seemingly had cramp. Um, I don't know if he was really upset that he was going to have to go off. I don't know if he started crying and then was really embarrassed because he knew he was on BBC, so he decided to cover up his face with his shirt. Um, hopefully he's fit for the uh, for the replay. Um if it is just cramp, but that was that was quite sad. Um, but yeah, I mean, just an amazing, um, a really amazing day for them and their fans. And what an occasion that that replay is going to be when they take them back to their place. Yeah, and it's not like these days. It's not in the same way that League Two isn't all four four two hoofball. Actually, these cup ties with the non league teams is not big man up top hoofball either. It's not just like. Yeah. sit back and hope for the best. Cray were like, I thought Cray Valley paper mills, not to be confused with Cray Wanderers, yeah. were like really positive in the way that they played. Of course they had to defend and they did so stoutly. Yeah. But when they got on the ball, when they got into Charlton's final third, I was really impressed with the way that they went about attacking. I mean, Ibrahim's through ball for Lisby um, in the lead up to the goal was pure quality. Sort of rolled his foot over the ball a couple of times under pressure, then outside of the right foot, perfect spin on it to slow down just so Lisby could uh, could get to it and cross it back in. Um, really, really uh, exciting. And yeah, I mean, obviously we are some of the biggest EFL nerds around, but I make no bones about the fact that in the early rounds of the FA Cup, I want all the non-league teams to be all the EFL teams. Yeah. No question about that. Um, the 41K prize money, I think, goes quite I, far. I famously wanted... For a non-league um, team. I wanted Maidenhead and Oxford to draw so I could have the replay. Right. Yeah, that was tempting fate a little bit, but <laughs> uh, Yellow's 2-0 winners. Uh, apologies, as always, that we've not gone into great depth with the cup stuff, uh, something that we that we may do in the future. This is quite fun. Um, Betfair tweeted uh, just now the biggest upsets, and obviously with the exchange market and betting, um, you know, you have live prices as games are going on. Uh, Barnsley went 101 to win their game, which is 1-100. to 100. Uh, Crew... Sorry, uh, yeah, Crew went 102 to win theirs, Drew Tour with Derby. Charlton went 103, so 33 on to win theirs. Scarborough 103, Salford 1.1. So you're having loads of like ridiculous um, games where they looked like they were done only for the other team to come back and um, and either draw level or win. Can you ma- measure surprising late drama? Yes, you can. You yes, you can when George is around and when the Betfair Exchange exists and thanks very much for listening to this podcast guys uh if you've enjoyed this uh 70 minute recap of some weekend action uh, there is something really tangible that you could do to show your appreciation and that's vote for us in the podcast of the year category yeah the what i'm calling the best podcast of the year in the fsa awards uh, i've dropped the link in the description it's pinned to the top of our twitter page um stick it in your bio too why not? It's, it'll be in the bio too. You know we're really chuffed and excited about this. I won't go on about it. But uh, if you like the pod um, more than the other pods that are nominated, then just show a bit of support. And we're not going to win. But what if we did? <laughs> go out. <laughs> <laughs>